Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, we are here right now. Our hearts are now quieted, Lord. Our minds are are quieted, Lord. We are prepared to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would use this time this morning to speak to us through your word, through my voice. Lord, use me this morning. Lord, would you, would you prick our hearts for the things that you want to say to each and every one of us today, Lord? Let us hear, let us leave here today different than when we came in. Let us leave, leave challenged today. Let us leave convicted, Lord. Let us leave encouraged knowing that you do have something planned, something astounding, Lord, and let us hold on to that. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Last week at chapter 20, there was a lot in there about some major battles, whether it was them going in and, and him instructing them what to do when you're, when you're going up against a, a Canaanite city member. He said, you go in and you, when, you, when I give you the victory, you utterly destroy everyone because as we looked at, uh, they're a cancer. They become a cancer that has to be eradicated. But he also talked about when you go up against other cities other than the Canaanites, the Canaanite nations, that there was a, a strategy around that as well. And they were to, to just completely come in and take it over and offer peace at first. But if they didn't accept the peace, then they were to lay siege to the city. And um, once they surrendered, that they were to go in and they were to kill all of the men, all the soldiers, all the potential future enemies and there is seems to be in chapter 20 really just a lot of like like bloodshed in that one and like battle there's a lot of talk about battle and bloodshed and I, I totally could understand if even after we talked about the reasons why God had given them these instructions, the reason for offering them peace, but then going in and, and um, taking over, or the reasons why he, uh, we know after we've studied uh, why he says you need to go in and, and just utterly, utterly destroy these Canaanite cities, even after that understanding, um, I, I, would, I would completely understand if you still walked out of here thinking, man, it's, but it's still... I mean, man, God still seems really like harsh. There's a lot of like battle and, and death and 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 you know what? God God knows that too. Like God can hear your heart as you leave and he says, I know. I know what you're thinking. I know it seems rough. So you know what I'm gonna do? God says this. Uh, I'm gonna give you chapter twenty-one in Deuteronomy, right after chapter twenty, because twenty-one flips the script. And he says, yes, I know 20 seemed like I was just about the battle and the death. But 21, I want to show you that I care about life so dearly that I'm even going to tell you what to do when you find just one person who's been slain. I care so deeply about life that I'm going to show you in chapter 21 just how much I care about life. Um, and I love that. I love that God sees our hearts and hears what it is that's going on inside of us. And he says, you know what? I, I hear what you're going through. I'm going to address that too. I'm going to minister to that too. And so we come to chapter 21. <clears throat> 21, he talks about if you find someone outside of a city who's been slain, let's look at that. He says, if anyone is found slain in verse one, laying in the field in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him. So first of all, I, I went through every single version of the Bible and every single version of this verse says either you found someone who was slain or murdered. So there is no misunderstanding that they're not talking about someone who maybe tripped on a rock and hit their head and died or had a heart attack. This is someone who has been killed by somebody else. All right, that is who we're talking about, which God would say is, is innocent blood, the, the loss of life of, an in, of, of someone innocent, even regardless of what maybe they were going on in their life. He says this person was slain, and he looks at this as, as innocent blood. 
Uh, and so he's going in. He says, if you find someone laying in a field who's been murdered and, and you don't know who killed him, it says in verse 2, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And so um, my first question is, wh- why? <laughs> why? Why such specific instructions? Like if, you find, if someone comes along and they find a, a, a person who's been uh, murdered and is left in the field, all of the surrounding cities have to try and decide who is that body closest to in, in, in geographic distance. And so they have to go out and they have to measure. Now, how, how did they do that? They didn't have tape measures. They're like, uh, you, you know, you get the idea, first of all, that nobody really wanted to claim this, okay? This is what they understood is that God cares about life. He's talking about one person here, and he cares so much about life that he's giving them these very specific instructions, and they know that he cares so much about life that attached to life is consequence when life is taken, It like in this case. And they're all like, I don't want, anything. I don't want to be responsible for this. No, he's closer to your city. No, no, he's closer to your city. So they're just like, all right, one, two. Three. Now, first of all, you know what struck me when I first read this? This is a very, like, none of this has happened yet. Do you understand? They're all sitting there with their backpacks on the, on the Jordan River, getting all this instruction from Moses, who's like, it's been days maybe that they're sitting there like, okay, we're not supposed to worship idols. Okay, we're not supposed to do uh, worship God in the way that they worship idols. We're not supposed to go in and use any other temples. We have to tear all that stuff down. We're not supposed to do this. We are supposed to do that. And all of a sudden, he's like, okay, now when you go in and you find someone slain, you know, when you're not fighting a Canaanite city and you're in between battles and you find someone slain, and someone, all of a sudden, they must be going, oh my goodness, we haven't even gone into the land yet. Is somebody writing this down? (laughs) Did somebody... This is a lot to remember. But the crazy thing is when I look at this and I say, uh, what I see is, is God is talking to them as if he's already seen all of this happen already, and they haven't even gone into the land yet. And he's giving them, you know, not just like, oh, we'll act like this or be kind to one another or do these things. And he does say those things. But here he's saying, and when you go in, here are some very specific instructions on when you find a dead body lying in a field who someone has killed and you don't know who it is. And I guess that must be a little bit overwhelming at the moment to be like, what? Can we just get in? The thing is, that if it seems like God is speaking to them in a way that is, is he's already seen it, it's because he has already seen it. So we understand this idea that God doesn't function on the same human timeline that he actually has set up for us to follow. Right? It almost seems a little unfair that it's like God says, well, I'm outside of time, but here's a timeline for you all. You follow it, but why do you suppose? That's probably because we can't handle the truth. I'm sorry. <laughs> we can handle the truth. We couldn't handle the future. That's the thing. Like, we couldn't handle. I mean, look at every time travel movie there is. It gets screwed up every time. They go into the future, they mess something up. Right? Well, God stands outside of time. There's some great verses that I wrote down here. In Isaiah 57, it says that God inhabits eternity. I love that verse, actually. God inhabits eternity. In 2 Peter 3.8, it says that to God, one day is like a thousand days, and a thousand days is like one day to God. That means that time and God, they don't operate in the way that we operate. One day to us is like one day. Sometimes one day seems like a, like a week, doesn't it? And doesn't like a week seem like a, a day? Do you ever go on vacation? Has anyone ever gone on vacation? And you're there and you're like, how, how is it Saturday again already? I, I just got here. But to God, he's outside of time. In Revelation, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That means I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then he says, the Lord who was 
and is and is to come. That means I was then, I am now, and I am to come all at the same time because I stand outside of time, meaning that everything that I'm saying to you, when you go into the land and you see a dead body in the field, he's already seen it. And so he's giving them instructions. But see, why is it so important for us to grasp the fact that God is outside of time, meaning he is right now, he was then, he is now, and he will be all at the same time. Why is that so important to grasp onto? Well, there's another verse that I love, and you probably know it, Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, I know the plans I have for you, to prosper you, to not harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Right? And so when he says, I know the plans that I have for you and for your future to give you hope and to prosper you, you can say, oh, okay, I can trust that because I know you're already there. God's already seeing me in my life in the future. And so when he comes to me now and he says, you know, you know what I was thinking the other day? What if I went from 2022 back to when I was like 12, which would have been 19-something. And I showed up to my 12-year-old self, and I was like, hey, hey, because I was short when I was little. <clears throat> I'm from the future. I mean, 2022 to a 1980-something kid would seem like Oh my goodness, you're from the future. And I imagine my 12-year-old self saying, tell me all about everything that's different in 2022. And I'd be like, not that, not that much, actually. I mean, we still drive cars. We still wear, actually, we're wearing the exact same clothes that you're wearing right now. <laughs> not, the, not that much different. Sorry, that was a sidetrack, but it just was interesting. But God, God knows my future. Right now, he knows my future. So when he comes back and he says, I know the plans that I have for you. So I'm going to, and I'm telling you that so that it gives you hope. I have plans for your future. And as he reminded me in Habakkuk 1.5, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Hold on to that. Grasp onto it. Anyway, he says to these guys, when you get in, when you get in there and you find a dead body, then you have to go out and you have to measure the distance because a life has been taken and there are consequences attached to that that need to be fulfilled. That's what he's going to say. And it shall be in verse three that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring their he the heifer down to the valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And so, okay, a lot of specifics, very oddly specific right here. It's got to be a heifer, which is a female cow, and the heifer means that it's never um, produced young. And you got to take that heifer whoever's closest or whoever city is closest. So as they're like pacing off, we're like, <laughs> sorry, dude, we're nine paces and you're eight. So he's yours, right? Now the responsibility uh, of the consequences are on them. So they have to bring this heifer, this, this uh, female cow that's never given birth down to a valley that has a running either stream or river in it that has never been planted or used for anything uh, agricultural and bring in this heifer. And there in that valley, they break its neck, okay? Now, if your version of the Bible, whichever one you happen to be reading, says you need to cut off its head, that's, a, that's not, a good, not a good translation. Um, it was very specific that it was break the neck of the heifer, and there's a very specific reason why, which we're gonna we'll get to. Um, so, really, what God was saying was that there is a consequence. Remember, He said, if someone kills a, a person, then that person then is guilty and needs to be also killed. That was the that was what God required of of uh, of murder. Well, what they're saying is. Um, if it's not known who killed this person, then whomever's city is closest, they go down and they offer a substitute 
in place of whomever killed that person. And so they bring this heifer down and they break its neck as a substitute for the person who was actually guilty of that because God says, if someone has been murdered, then another life has to pay for it. And so bring down this heifer. Now, I want to point out something to you. The heifer is not a sacrifice. A heifer is a substitute. And there's a a very important distinction. See, God had said for the uh, atonement of or the covering of sin, they were to bring an animal that was like a goat or a sheep that was uh, spotless and without blemish, and they would cut its neck and drain out the blood and shed its blood as a sacrifice for sin. But this heifer is not a sacrifice, it's a substitute. And no blood is shed here. Its body is broken, but its blood is not shed. You understand? Everybody understand? All right, this is important, okay? So along with there to be a sacrifice for sin, there was also a substitute needed, in this case specifically, um, that had to stand in for the guilty party. Now... We know that God instituted the idea of sacrifice or the ritual of sacrifice because um, he, first of all, never required the people to offer another person as a blood sacrifice for sin. Never did he require it. At one point, he asked Abraham to do it. Remember, he asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, but then didn't actually require it of him. So he never required anyone to sacrifice a person for the Um, for the covering of sin. Do you know why? Short of that being really hard to explain uh, today. Um, But God said, look, it has to be the blood of an innocent sacrifice, right? So an animal can be an innocent sacrifice, but a person actually can't be an innocent or perfect sacrifice because there's sin in every single person. Now, you may think, well, yes, I mean, this sounds really horrible to say, but what if they were going to sacrifice a baby? A baby doesn't have sin. A baby does have sin. In fact, the Bible says that every single person is born with sin because it entered through Adam and Eve, and from them comes everyone, including a sin nature. So even a baby has sin when it's born. And if you don't believe me, think back to when you had a baby, if you did, um, to one of the first words that baby learns. No. No. Mine and daddy. (laughs) When my nephew, who's 30 now, but when he was first born, or not first born, but little, before he could speak, I remember sitting with him one time, and he was in his high chair, and I was probably feeding him or playing or something, and he kept knocking something over, and I was like, stop it. I put it over here, and I was like, don't touch it. And so he goes like this. (laughs) And he wasn't touching it, but he was like, he understood what I said, don't touch it, but he was like, hmm, how about here? I'm not touching it, I'm not touching it. Because there was rebellion in his heart. Even before he could speak, there was rebellion in his heart. Because we're born with a sin nature. And so God says, there isn't a single human being born that can be offered as a sacrifice because it wouldn't do any good. But an animal, in that sense, is innocent. Now, an animal is only so good in terms of sacrifice, which is why they had to do it continuously, at least annually, and often more times to enable to cover their sin. But that was a sacrifice. See, and I say there wasn't a human born um, until Jesus came. Because when Jesus came, when God sent his son to earth to be born in the form of a baby. He was the only baby ever born without sin. He was the only human who ever lived a life without sin. And so he was the only human person whose blood could be shed as a sacrifice, as an atonement for sin that actually not just covered sin, but cleansed sin away. Not just one time a year, but for all times. And Jesus was also a substitute. 
You understand, he came as a sacrifice to cover and cleanse away our sin, but he came as a substitute because we were guilty. The, the sentence of death was on us, but he came to not only be our sacrifice to cover and cleanse, us, cleanse our sins, but to also stand in our place as our substitute. So was he a sacrifice? Yes. Was he a substitute? Yes. In fact, what we say is Jesus was a sacrificial substitute. He did both. He shed his blood and, oh, by the way, his body was broken for us. Today is communion. We're going to look at that verse where he says, this, this cup is my blood that was shed for you, but this bread is my body which was broken. You ever wonder why he said that? Because he was a sacrifice and a substitute. That's why it's so important to understand that that heifer's head wasn't cut off. It was broken. Its body was broken as a substitute, but a sacrifice's blood was shed for our sin. Is that... Like, does that blow you away? Because I, I mean, when I read that, I was like, what? <sighs> and so that's what's going on right here. There was a, a death that had to, had to be atoned for, and they didn't know who did it, and they never, didn't see who did it. And, uh, and so in order to um, fulfill the requirement, the consequence of it, they brought a heifer down, uh, an innocent uh, animal, and they broke its body to stand in the gap, to be the substitute for the consequence. It says in verse 5, Then the priests, the sons, the Levites shall come near the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. In fact, what they're doing is, and this is why there had to be a body of running water, in the, is that they would use that water to wash their hands. Um, and as the water dripped from their hands, it lands in the stream and, and goes away. As symbolic of saying any, any blood that might be on our hands because of this body, we're saying we're washing our hands of it. And as the water hits the stream, it washes away. And they say that we wash our hands of this whole situation because they've done what was required of them. You know what? Do you remember anybody else saying that in any other situation in the Bible that you might have read? Remember when Pilate is questioning Jesus? And he keeps on going back to them and is like, I don't see any reason why we should kill this guy. And they're like, we don't care. Just kill him. Just kill him. And they don't actually give any more evidence, do they? Just shout louder. They just shout louder. And so Pilate goes to a basin and he washes his hands. And he says, I wash my hands of the innocent blood of this man. You know, um, however, I, I, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking that through. It was a basin that he washed his hands in. So everything that he just washed his hands just went right back into the basin right there. Because really, was he innocent of the guilt of Jesus? He had the power to let him go. Nah, sort of. Right? He did have the power to let him go. But who was really in control of that whole situation? God the whole time. God had the whole thing under control. But it's interesting to me that he says the same thing, that he's washing his hands of the situation. And so this is what they say is, uh, they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed the blood, nor have our eyes seen it. We don't know who did it, and we certainly didn't do it either. And then it says, provide atonement, O Lord, for your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people of Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. And so if they do what it is that God is calling them to do, if they offer a substitute whose body is broken uh, on behalf of the one who was slain and in place of the one who did it since they didn't know who it was, God says, um, it has been atoned for and we do not lay any guilt on you for this. But they needed to go through those steps. They needed to recognize that a substitute was needed in their place. That's interesting, right? Isn't that interesting? God was saying, you need to recognize that a substitute is needed. He would say, you need to recognize that there's a sacrifice that needs to be made. And here, you need to understand that there's a substitute. You need to recognize it in order for you to be free of the guilt of it. Don't we need to do the same? 
Haven't many of us done that very thing? To say, I know that I needed a sacrifice on my behalf. I know that I needed a substitute in my place, and I recognize that Jesus was that sacrifice, that Jesus was that substitute. I receive that, and now I'm atoned for. But see, like he would say to them, if the prophet comes, who is Jesus, and he tells you these things, if he says, I am the sacrifice, my blood will be shed, my body will be broken, and you say, nah, I'm good. God says, then it's required of you. It's required of you. And gang, you don't have enough blood to cover your own sin. You don't have a body that can be broken enough times to be the substitute that needs to be offered. But you do have the option to receive Jesus, who did that for you. In verse 9, you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. In verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them to your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and would like to take her for your wife... Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. Let's just go on. No, no, no. I explain a few things. First of all, again, no, he's not talking about any of the Canaanite nations because he didn't make any room for them uh, after the cities. Like they were all to be destroyed again. And if this is your first day, it's because God gave them hundreds of years to come to a reconciliation of God and they rejected and rejected and rejected as a people but on an individual basis we know that God had compassion on those who turned to him and repented uh, as Rahab does in the city of Jericho and is included not just in the whole family of God but actually in the lineage of Jesus Christ and so there isn't anyone who's too far gone who can't turn back to God and be saved as Rahab was. But that's not who we're talking about. We're not talking about Canaanite women here. We're talking about those other cities that he was to go out into. And um, either when you go in and you besiege it, besiege this, in my mind, besiege is just like, oh, like that. And keep doing this. I'm going to do it forever, Jan. I can't help it. Okay. Well, at the end, you know, like all, all of the, the soldiers were dead at this point, and you take all the women and all the children. And th- what this says is if you take a city captive and you look out, you're know, like looking out over all the, the women from the city that you just captured, and there's one that you're like, she's fine, <laughs> right? You walk over here, and the guy's just like, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> or some version of that. If it, if it says that you would, if you see her and she's beautiful and you desire her to be your wife, then there's a process. It says you bring her home to your house and she shaves her head and she trims her nails. Specifically, it says these things. This is kind of crazy. Um, and it says um, that, uh, and she puts off the clothes of her captivity remaining in your house and, more, and mourn her father and her mother for one month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be her, your wife. And so God, God I, I think God does this. Okay, you're looking out at the captives, and you see a woman that you're like, oh, she's nice looking. I think I would like to have her as my wife. Then you bring her home to your house. But remember, she is a pagan woman. So they had a way of dressing that was different than Israelite women and were um, very likely, I mean, they would be adorned with, with gold and, and um, certain types of robes and uh, some kind of a headdress uh, that was part of what they wore to attract men. Uh, and so God says, bring them home, remove all of the exterior trappings, and then see if you're still looking at that person as attractive. And, and see, what this is going to say is, after a month, you, after a month, if you're still, this is implied, but if you still find them attractive, then you go in and be their husband. And, and she could be your wife. But then it's going to say, but if you don't <laughs> find her attractive anymore, then you need to set her free. And it's kind of the idea of this. 
God is saying, look, this is a kind of a theme that runs in and out of the Bible in several places. Beauty is not outward. Beauty is not outward. And it's like God is saying to them, what I want you to, look, if you want to marry this woman, and it's, again, implied that she's going to be brought in uh, and converted to be of the people, you need to strip away the outward to see if what the beauty that you're attracted to is outward adornment or inward beauty. Um, and there, you know, it says in 2 Peter, don't let your adornment be merely outward with braided hair and gold jewels, uh, gold jewels, gold and jewels and fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart. We did a, a kind of an experiment with the youth group of maybe a month or two ago where um, we were putting up pictures of like the, kind of like the world's idea of someone who's beautiful and someone maybe not as beautiful, I guess is what it says. Um, and so we were kind of testing the youth to say like, okay, which one of these two people is more beautiful? You know, the, they're so clever. They're clever, aren't they, Jen? They're on to me like that. I can't fool them. Um, but one of the things that we learned with the youth is that if you took two people that were just like from here up, right, and you put them up on the wall, the, the one thing that they, dis they distinctly decided made the person beautiful was what do you think? A smile. It was a smile that made that person the most beautiful of the two because a smile, even though it's on the outward, it comes from someplace inside, doesn't it? It comes from a place inside. And as, as Peter writes, don't let it be merely outward. Good thing. I'm actually so thankful that Peter put in merely <laughs> uh, because, you know, this doesn't just happen. <laughs> but can you imagine if you just kind of roll out? I mean, actually, that's probably a pretty good test. If you get two people who come to me and they say, you know what, we really want to get married, I'm going to be like, okay, let's do this. Get up tomorrow morning and just roll out of bed and then let's come together and get a good look at each other without anything going on. You know, don't brush your hair, don't, you know, foundation or like, there's a lot of things. I'm learning there's a lot of things. There's like lipstick and foundation. And then on top of that, there's stuff. And then um, there's like, do you put like sticky eyelashes on? And they're huge now. Also, there's like. <laughs> you know, Angie and I were looking at pictures the other day at work uh, about celebrities made up as you see them and not made up. And there were many I did not recognize not made up or you just been like, <laughs> but you know, there were many that were just like, just beautiful without anything going on at all, except most of them smile. They had a smile and you're just like, ah, oh, they're beautiful. And I have to believe that most of that beauty came from the fact that they were smiling from someplace inside. But Peter says, Peter says, don't let it merely be outward. That means it can be a little bit outward. Steve, you might want to read that verse a time or two more. There you go. But let it be the secret person of the heart. And so I think right here, God is saying, look, if you see this woman and you bring her in and after you've removed all of the outward adornment, if after a month, actually this is what it says here, and she's in your house for a month and mourning her mother and father. Now, some commentators believe that that means that, you know, she's either been taken away, which we know that she has been, um, or that they've been killed uh, but there are other commentators that actually say that if you look back into the original language, it's not really talking about her mother and father, but her mother and father's idols. Now, you remember when Jacob went and uh, um, he left with, you know, Rachel and Leah. Um, but Rachel, when she left, she took her father's household items, uh, idols, <laughs> not items, not like a spatula in a bowl or anything. <laughs> like, I took 
the idols, her father's household idols, because there was something that like, they were like dear to her. And so some commentators read in the original language that this is more about her saying she has to give up the idols of her mother and father, the things that she's been raised with in terms of worship, because that's a reoccurring theme for God, isn't it? Don't have anything to do with idol worship as my people. No idol worship. And so there's the separating of her, yes, maybe from her family, but also from her family's worship of idols, which she's been raised up with. And it says here that after that time is over, if you, it says, and if you have delight in her, meaning like if your attraction to her was more than just outward, then you shall, uh, then you will go in. Sorry, I'm mixing this up a little, but it's the same message. Um, You go in and be her husband. Now, you know, um, I'm quickly looking around the room and we have a few children. So listen to this. They are, if he is still attracted to her after a month, he is to go in and be with her as a husband is to be with a wife. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? All right. Now, this is very interesting, though. Do you see how God relays that message to Moses? It says, God says, this is where that act of intimacy fits and only fits. He's saying that act of intimacy means you go in and be a husband to her. He doesn't say, go in and take her. He says, go in and be a husband to her, and she is a wife to you. You see, God is very clear throughout the word about how he has created and defined the intimate acts between a man and a woman, and it is relegated to a husband and a wife. Now, it's been trampled forever, normalized, celebrated, accepted, perverted greatly. But God says it's a husband and a wife. That's where that fits, right there. Now, he says here, if after that, if you see her after a month, and look, even though the verse, this verse comes after, he says, go in and be a husband to her, um, he's not saying go in and try her out, and if you're not happy with her, then set her free. It's saying, like, if you're happy after a month, go in and be a husband. If after a month you're not uh, finding her beautiful because she's lost all the outward adornments, then you let her go. She's not your property to sell or to um, get money off of. You set her free. That's what this is saying right here. Um, And because you have humbled her, really, that's what it says. I mean, now now what? She's She's got no fancy nails. She's bald. And she's wearing some drab robe. He's like, you know what? I don't know what I was thinking. You want, here you go. Hey, see you later. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for, you know. And out she goes. And I'm sure she's walking out being like, great. No nails, no hair, no fine clothes. Eyelashes gone. <laughs> she's been humbled, it says right there. Now, verse 15. Look at this. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved. Let's just pause there for a moment, shall we? I read and I believe that God's intention was a man and a woman. Not many women. In fact, we see there are many places throughout the Bible where God talks about many wives or multiple wives. It's never good. There's never anywhere that I've found where God actually says, good job, you must be really desirable because look at all the wives you have. There's never a situation that I find in the Bible where he is saying uh, or endorsing having multiple wives. I mean, when he created Adam and Eve, wouldn't it have been easier if he was like Eve and Janice and Shelley and like, wouldn't he just have populated a lot quicker? He was like, nope, one man, one woman, here we go, that's the model. And later on, he was like, you know what, multiple wives is just going to be not good. It's not going to be good. In fact, every time you see him talking about if you have two wives, and we're talking about like at the same time, it's always some kind of a fix or conflict that he's dealing with. 
you, it's almost as if God is looking at him. And again, remember, this hasn't happened yet, but he's seeing it in the future that's going to happen. If he has two wives, and it's like he's saying, I can't even believe that we have to talk about this. But if you have two wives and you love this one more than you love this one, this is what's going to happen. And it's like if you only had one wife like my plan for you, we wouldn't have to have this conversation. This whole section we wouldn't have to talk about. He's saying if you have more than one wife, or if you have two wives and you have children by both of them, and this wife that you love less, or it says in your Bible maybe hate, ooh, uh, um, if you have a child, a son with that wife first, but then you have a son with the second wife who you love more, you're going to be inclined to say, but well, I want to leave everything to this son. This is my real firstborn. And God says, sorry, this is your firstborn son. You cannot show favoritism to this one just because this one is from another wife and you have more than one wife. You have two wives. God says, you, you just can't do that. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, and I just summarized all three of those verses. So let's go on to 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, or, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gates of the city. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious and will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. Wow. You've got like a 10-year-old like, you're bad, come on, you're going out to the city. And, and you have to understand, they're not talking about a child. They're talking about a son. But how many 10-year-olds do you know who are drunkards and gluttons? The indication is that this is an adult son who they have chastened, meaning they've tried and tried and tried to correct and will not heed any of their correction and is a drunkard and a glutton, is a drain on their family regardless of what they try and do. And here's something else. The words in, in verse 20 say, when they say to the elders that he is stubborn and rebellious, it says it right, right at the beginning too in verse 18, if the man has a, and the man is, uh, has a stubborn and rebellious son, okay, well, it, right here, all we get is stubborn and rebellious. But if you look at 1 Samuel 15, 23, jot that down, but I'm going to read it, okay? This is talking about um, the story of uh, Saul, where he's supposed to go out uh, against an army of the, um, the Amalekites. And God says to Samuel, tell Saul that when he goes up against the army of the Amalekites, that they are to destroy everything, don't leave anything alive, even the livestock, just, just get rid of all of it. That's what God says to him. And so Saul goes into uh, the fight against the Amalekites, and when they get to the point where the, um, they have King Agag under the knife, he does not kill him. Also, they do not destroy all of the choice livestock, but they keep it for themselves. And Samuel comes walking up to Saul, and he's like, how'd it go, Saul? Did you do all that the Lord said? And Saul says, yep. And then you hear, bah. <laughs> and they turned around. And that's literally what it says. They heard the bleeding of the sheep behind him. And Samuel's like, uh, Saul, that's not what God said. And he's like, I did. Saul says, I did exactly what the Lord said. But we've saved all of these choice livestock so we could offer them as sacrifices to the Lord. And Samuel's words for him are that this, he calls him rebellious and stubborn, but he says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And so he defines rebellion and stubborn as witchcraft and idolatry. Now, doesn't that make a little bit more sense now that we're looking at this place right here 
after God has warned them and warned them and warned them, and we've already looked at it against idolatry and witchcraft, and they're bringing out their son, this rebellious and stubborn son, saying he refuses to give up witchcraft and idolatry. Then he's brought before the elders of the city, and he is not one to repent of what he's doing. And then God says, look, the, the, the consequence is death for being rebellious, for not giving up witchcraft, and for not giving up idolatry. Isn't just that the parents are like, you know, oh yeah, we'll clean up your room, we'll show you. We're going to take you out to the elders. It's it's much bigger than God would never would never say stone a, a child who's disobedient. <laughs> he says it's still about disobedience to God in idolatry in witchcraft. Those things that are drawing you away from God. So it says that all the men of the city will stone him to death with stones, and you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Two things. When Jesus, in his ministry, was talking to the disciples of John, remember John was in prison, they sent his disciples over to see if he was the one. Part of Jesus' message was that he says, look, John came not eating and not drinking, and they called him a weirdo. I came and I eat and drink, and they call me a drunk, a glutton, and a wine-bibber. They were trying to accuse him of this. They were trying to use the same things that would have been so recognized 1,400 years ago as some, a charge that they could lay against someone to maybe get them executed. Now, in Jewish history... It says that they actually never had to carry out this act. Because look what it says. If you put this out there and say, if this happens, this is what the consequence is, you will be stoned outside the city by all the elders, and all of Israel shall hear and fear, and it acts as a deterrent, guess what? It was. They don't have any recording in Jewish history that they actually stoned someone because parents dragged them out and said, he's a drunkard and a glutton. You know, he refuses. He's stubborn and rebellious. Um, and that anybody was ever actually stoned because of that. It didn't stop the Pharisees from trying to use that against Jesus in his ministry. And if a man, verse 22, has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Oh, okay, if there's time, it's good. <laughs> they thought that it was the absolute worst to leave someone hanging out. This isn't necessarily talking about someone who was executed by hanging, but that they were stoned perhaps, but then to put their disgrace uh, on display, they would be hung from a tree for all to see. However, in God's compassion, he said, they're not to stay there for days and let the animals come and eat away at them, but on that same day, before the end of the day, you were to take them down and to bury them. Um, and God said that, you know, um, I don't want them hanging there and, and having the, the beasts come. Um, their, their death was carried out, they were put on display as a deterrent for everyone else, but there's a finite amount of time that I will allow that to happen. That became so ingrained in the Jewish people that on the day that Jesus was crucified and hung on a tree, the Romans would have left him on the cross until the animals ate the carcass off the cross. But the Jews actually came and said, According to our custom and because it's preparation, these bodies can't be left up on the cross. And so God, 1,406 years before, establishes what will actually be the reason that Jesus is taken down on the day of the crucifixion and put into the tomb so that three days later, as prophesied, he would raise up from the grave defeating death, as we will celebrate 
soon, in a couple of weeks, on Easter. Isn't that amazing to me that God is so outside of this that he says, I will establish this law in my people 1,406 years prior, so much so that when the very ones who put him on the cross will feel it necessary to take him down off of that cross on that same day so that he can go in the tomb, so that prophecy will be fulfilled and he'll raise up three days. What if that hadn't happened and the Romans had left him on the cross for days? He wouldn't have ever been in the tomb. There wouldn't have been a resurrection that was according to prophecy. And it all would have fallen apart. But look how God has got it all knit together perfect. Perfect. Isn't that amazing? That blows my mind. That allows me to have a bad day and still go home and be like, okay, you've got this under control, God. I know you do. I know you do. I know you have a plan. I know you have a plan. And he reminds me also because I have plans to hire. But my ways are higher as the heaven is from the earth. Not like he's saying it in a way like, ha ha, you're stupid. It's like he's saying, just trust me. By the way, I love you. I love you. That's why I've done all of this. Because I love you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much. This is such a rich book, Lord. I, I'm blown away week after week by what you revealed to me. Lord, thank you so much. Lord, I just pray that uh, something got to somebody today, Lord, that you spoke into someone's heart. And Lord, that they would leave today different than when they walked in the door this morning. I just thank you so much for how you provide, Lord, even the space that we could come. Lord, even the freedom to be able to do two services. Lord, this unlimited time, tons of parking. Lord, even these things that seem small in the kingdom of heaven, Lord, you know our concerns of ours, and so you take care of those things. So thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you so much, and in your name we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.